Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today is Agle Jezekel. Agle is a really remarkable scientist, and by way of introducing her, I'll first say that after listening to this recording, Melanie called Agle the first of the younger, more activist generation of climate scientists to be on the podcast. Now, Melanie herself and Jane Baldwin are the same generation as Agle, more or less, and both of them have been on. But when I said that, Melanie's response was that she was talking more about motivation and mindset than seniority per se. And put that way, I think it's a fair statement. But while Agle might represent some others of her generation in some ways, really, she's unique. First of all, she's genuinely a physical climate scientist and a social scientist at the same time. Her PhD thesis had roughly equal components of both, and she writes legitimate research papers in both. And if there's anyone else like that, I don't know them. But it's not just methodological. When Agle talks, her scientific curiosity comes across to me as inextricable from her desire to do something about the climate problem and, as part of that, to understand both the Earth system and the human social processes involved. So Agle has worked a lot on extreme event attribution, that is, the science of relating individual extreme weather events to climate change. She has made multiple substantive contributions to the methodology of attribution, both in its statistical aspects and meteorological questions, like how to characterize the atmospheric circulation of events in a way that makes attribution more effective. But she's also studied how attribution science is used by those outside the scientific community, and my read of her paper on that, which we talk about, is that it's used more by journalists than anyone else. And in the space between the physical and social science dimensions, Agle has contributed in major ways to the discussion about the relationship between the two major types of attribution, the so-called storyline and risk approaches, and we talk about that too. So as usual, we trace Agle's route to where she is now, starting with her childhood in a home where books were the top priority for the whole family. And then we spent quite a bit of time on her education and how it led to her current position, which is she's a scientist at the Laboratoire de Météorologie Dynamique, LMD, pardon my French, literally speaking, at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. And as part of that, I asked her a lot of questions about the French system, because it's quite different from the American and others. And after all, tracing these things is part of what we do here. But the bigger part of what we do here is try to reckon with the tension between the curiosity and inspiration that lead people to be scientists and the desire that many of us who work in this particular field have to see our work make a positive difference in the real world. And if there's one thing I've learned by now, it's that that tension is real for many climate scientists, not just me. But it really does seem that it's much less real for Agle. The integration of these two spheres just seems to come more naturally to her. And maybe there's a generational dimension to that, but I think the more important part of it is Aglae's originality and brilliance. She's found her own way into this problem, and I think we'll see many others follow down the trail she's blazing, or at least I hope so. So let's stop there and get to my conversation with Aglae Jezekel. Thanks, Aglae, so much for doing this conversation with me. You're welcome. It's great to talk to you from across the ocean. So where are you from originally? I was born in 1991 in Paris, okay. and I'm one of the most sedentary researchers out there because I've really, I haven't moved 
that far from Paris. <laughs> Almost all my life, I've been either in Paris or the suburbs of Paris, except for like four months that I spent in the US. But that's all. So yeah, I think that's very peculiar for a scientist. And so uh, what did your parents do? My father has a weird background because um, he's been a farmer before I was born. And then uh, he was also, most of his work was about transcribing conferences, political conferences. So mm. not something he would say was very interesting. It's just like mm. a kind of secretary work in a way. And he was also like reading a book, like non-published books for an editor but work was never like a big thing for my father it was like something to get money and it was right. more about reading a lot of books i don't think i've <laughs> known anyone in my life who's read as many books i'm as as my father so basically in my home when i was growing up there were books everywhere on the walls also piles of books because they weren't fitting in the shelves and so he would read a lot of essays and my mom was reading a lot of novels because they were both both big readers, like type of people who read more than, I would say, three or four books a week, something like that. Wow. How do you, how is that even possible? <laughs> I mean, yeah, when I was a kid, I was also a bit like that. Um, but I mean, maybe not my father because he was reading essays, so it would be more like depends on the size of the essay at some point he was reading the whole history of france and it took him i don't know three months or something but wow yeah so that was from my father and my mother was um communicant she was like uh, she's still actually a um, consultant and she helps uh, firms or public institutions with uh, communication and uh, managing uh, human resources and stuff like that. But they're not scientists at all. And um, generally, my family is more into literature than into science. Do you have brothers and sisters? No, I'm an only child. So how did you get interested in science? I was uh, always very curious. So I was the kind of kid that would always ask a lot of questions. And um, mm -hmm. my parents were kind enough to help me with that. Like they wouldn't have all the, the answers, but like, for example, for my birthdays, we would go to science places in Paris, to the planetarium uh -huh. or for stuff like that. And they would buy me books because books was the thing in my <laughs> family. So yeah, I I was reading some books for children about science. And yeah, I mean, I, I but I, I wasn't only interested in science. I was generally interested in knowledge and understanding people. I read a lot of books too, um, novels. And then when I had my first physics lessons in uh, junior high, I was mm. really like, I fell in love with physics. Mm. I, I, I loved school. As, as a child and I always loved yeah. learning but physics was always a bit special from the first lesson I had when I was like 10 years old and I just wanted to learn more and my teachers were always nice to answer more questions and help me like uh, finding out more about anything like I think I think I remember one of the first things was Mendeleev classifications when I was like 10 years old and like being uh -huh. able to ask more about it to my uh, physics teacher and stuff like that. I found it really fascinating. I had this reaction to physics too as a child. So let's talk about it for a minute. What do you think about it that made it so special for you? I liked maths because it was easy and it was like 
it made sense. It was logical, but yeah. it also wasn't applied to anything. So it wasn't any. It wasn't magical for me. I know for some people, maths is magical. Yeah. But for me, what's magical is finding maths inside how the world works and yeah. like understanding things like when you hear about molecules and atoms and you like it's things that you don't see but and you realize that there's this amount of knowledge that was understood um, slowly but by different humans and then we are now like able to describe things that go beyond what we see with our eyes and for me it's fascinating and Almost all the kids interesting in physics, I was also into astrophysics. Mm -hmm. I don't like, we just look at the stars and understanding what's out there, how the universe works. And I don't, how was it for, for you? Yeah, I, I can identify with all of this. For me, it was my father who was trained as an engineer, although he didn't work much as an engineer, but he took me to planetarium when I was young and got me books about molecules and stuff. So I, I had the same reaction, although even younger because my dad was into it. Yeah. So he got me started even younger. But yeah, I completely identify with your... Yeah, but my mother's was kind of science adverse because not that she didn't want me to be, do science, but <laughs> she had very bad experience with mathematics growing up. And she still has, like, she's she's clever. I can have very interesting conversations with her. But whenever we talked about maths, it's like her brain freezes because I think so many kids get uh, bad experience with maths and then they just feel like they cannot do maths and anything that has to do with maths, then their brain freezes. Uh, and then my dad disliked physics a lot as a student when he was um, in high school. He was good in maths, but physics was something he never understood. So yeah, that was something that was really not shared with my family, although they were well. very supportive. Yeah, that's good that they encouraged you. Yeah. So I know in the French system, in the French educational system, compared to here, you, you specialize earlier, right? I mean, you. so at, at what point do you have to choose kind of your direction? Does that happen already in high school or? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, what I wasn't telling before is that I was, I loved physics, but I also loved French and literature and yes. Latin and Greek. And yes. for me, it was very hard to choose. And yes. it's still very hard to choose. I think it's it still yes. reflects to what I do now. Yes. And so what we do is when we are in high school, we have a first year that's still general, all uh, the different topics. And then when I was in high school, because not the same now, uh, I had to choose between science and literature when I was, I think, uh, 15. So I had still had two years of high school. But what happens there is that you almost always tell the kids who are good at school that they should choose science because it's like there's this hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And then they can always go back to literature later. So I right. chose science partly because of it, but I really hesitated back then. Because yeah. I, I was like, I, I was in a very good high school in Paris. And so it wasn't as much about saying you have to do science because you're a good student, because it was a very good high school. So the literature option was still a good option there. And uh -huh. my French teacher really wanted me to do that because I was the best student in French in my class. Wow. And <laughs> I... <laughs> Which, I mean, it doesn't mean much, but then I hesitated Yes, it does. Why do you say that? Of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> I hesitated a bit, but then I, I, I went with science. And then two years later, we have to choose what we want to do after high school. So in France, it's a lot about grandes écoles. 
Um, yes. You can do university or grandes écoles, which are like very selective places where you cram for two years and you try to go to the best school possible. Yes. And then it's a very huge boost on your CV. And it also like if you are a good student and you want to do something very challenging, if you go yes. for this two years of preparatory school to get yeah. to those exams, uh, then it's also like it's a time like when you I was 16. It's time when your brain is also... I would say keen to like work a lot. I mean, not that I don't work a lot now, but like to really do a lot of maths and get very good at calculation and stuff. And so, so yeah, I also had to hesitate there between science and literature. And I did the same choice thinking that I could always go back to literature later. Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of things to talk about. First of all, 16 being a time when your brain really wants to work. I mean, some people would say that. Some people want to be partying and dating and doing all of those things. But anyway, yeah, um, uh, no. sports, I don't know. Anyway, but um, the uh, yeah, the science and literature thing is something I've seen, you see here too, and even from my own kids i think somewhat i mean i think there's some truth to it in the sense that science and especially quantitative science is like a language like it's yeah. easier to learn it when you're young and if you don't have the fundamentals you can't keep going whereas you can always read books later yeah. although of course that's kind of under that's not giving enough credit to the study of literature because it's not just reading books you learn lots of things so i don't know yeah. but uh the thing about the grande école i mean this is something that i have come to understand about the french system that i think we have a little bit of it everywhere but i think the in france it's maybe stronger than anywhere else that early on you get into these particular very prestigious schools or you don't yeah. and it makes a huge difference for the rest of your life like all the prime ministers and all the ceos yeah. everyone has gone to the the top schools yeah. which you know of course in the u.s we have harvard and yale and stuff but i think the power is not quite as much as it is in france i personally don't like this system so much but i went through it because that, <laughs> i mean also because I, I was in that very selective high school yes and that's what all the students did there. So, yeah, yeah. Even, well, you yeah. can't. Yeah, I mean, you live in the country. It's the system. It is. So, which yeah. which one did you go to then? Uh, Ecole Polytechnique. Okay. So it's like one of the I would say one of the top two options. One is uh, Ecole Normale Supérieure, where I work now, which is the one yes. for researchers and teachers and professors usually. And then Polytechnique is in the best engineering school. It's also a military school, which is kind of peculiar. So I had to do the military training at the beginning. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's not the best part of the school. You do like, you do like boot camp or something or? Yeah. In the mud with military people. Yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Every student at Polytechnique has to do that? Yes. We have to do uh, four weeks of that. And then you Either you say, okay, I would like to do a civil service. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure. So you, you say, okay, the army is nice, but I would rather like be useful somewhere else. So that's what yes. I did. And <laughs> yeah. you can also decide that you're going to continue for six months with one of the military corps, like either the marine, the aviation, mm -hmm. air force. And sorry, I don't really have the... English words for that, but other yeah, yeah, yeah. people on foot, yeah. The Navy, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines in the US. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> that. Yeah, and, and that's something you do just once you get there. So you have been doing maths uh -huh. 
a lot of maths for two years and then you suddenly don't do maths for seven months Mm because the first month you're like going in the mud in your uniform and singing chants and marching and stuff like that. Uh What I did was I was in um, in a center to help uh, youth who are not as lucky as I was, I guess. So it's uh, youth that are placed there by the social aid for uh, children and mm-hmm. also the off of by their families and they struggle with school. So it's mm-hmm. like special place where I was living in the same place where the kids were living. So you both have the educational part without the school part, like they're kind of relearn how to be in society. Some of them have been through very dire experiences. And then you also have the school part where you just like, for me, I was tutoring them, helping. Because some of them couldn't even read numbers and they were like 12, 13, something like that. So you try to explain to someone how to write and read numbers because that's like, sometimes people will say maths are not that useful for like Mm. what you learn in junior high not necessarily going to be help- very helpful in your life, but reading and writing numbers, something like you feel, okay, you really have to know that because that's something that's you cannot really live well without knowing how to do that. So, And I did that for six months and that was really a good experience for me. It yeah. took me out of the, like before the pre- class preparatoire, the preparatory to the two years where I was cramming a lot, I was much more open to the world, like Mm -hmm. in terms of being interesting in politics, in the news and in like what is fair or not fair and Mm -hmm. anything that doesn't have to do with science. And then when you are like cramming for two years, then for me, I think it's the moment in my life where I was the most selfish and the most self-centered. And then I had this experience where I couldn't be self-centered and I, I didn't want to be self-centered, but like I learned a lot. And I think part mm-hmm. of why I decided to do something about the environment was because I was in a place where to help the kids, they were doing some apiculture, like they had some classes to have their bees with beehives and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so I learned about the fate of the bees at this moment. And I was terrified by the environmental problems and that the bees were disappearing. And then I was thinking, ah, environment is something that's important mm-hmm. socially, but it's also connected to science in a way. So maybe that's something yes. I want to pursue later. You hadn't chosen your subject yet at that time no at at the time actually i was thinking i wanted to be an historian of science oh i was doing science a lot Uh but i was thinking that i was be i wanted to be a a historian of science and i felt like doing science first was a good stepping stone which not everybody thinks is true but in the end a lot of historian of science have been scientists before they switched to being historian of science Yes. I mean, of course, it's helpful for them to understand what they're studying. Okay, so you do the civic service, you learn about the bees and the the people and everything. And so then so then what subject? So then you come back to the school and the school uh, covers mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, economics. And then you have the second year where you have to choose a bit more. And then I did something they called uh, challenges for environment sciences. There I I learned about climate change and I was following classes about energy, water, climate. And that's where I really Mm. thought that climate was the thing I wanted to work on. And so you continue that for the rest of the 
Yeah. Time. Um, yeah, kind of. Then I was in first year of master there then. And oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So two things happened then because you're, um, when you're in your third year in the school, so first year is military, then general, and then you choose your topic. Mm -hmm. So I had to choose what to do next. And what to do next was two different things. One is that I wanted to do a um, research master about climate. So one in mm -hmm. France, in uh, Jussieu, in the, at the university inside Paris. Yeah. And the other thing is that I decided to join what's called a corps d'état. It's like basically you become a civil servant. So you can do that when you get out of polytechnic, if you are uh, high enough in the ranking of students, because we are kind of ranked by um, our grades. Yeah. And you can, uh, so I, I chose to enter this and the one which is related to the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Agriculture. Wow. And by doing that, when you are enter polytechnic, you're already a civil servant and your employer is the Ministry of Defense. Uh -huh. And so I switch and I sign for at least 10 year long contract, but you can stay all your life if you want to work wow. for the Ministry of Environment and Agriculture. I did not realize this. It's like you're still an undergraduate and you get tenure already, kind of. Doesn't mean you're going to be a, a researcher when you sign this. What does it mean? What it means is just that you are going to get two more years as a student. One is mm -hmm. going to be a research master in a topic that is scientific. The second one is a master on public policies. Mm -hmm. And then you still owe eight years to the state. Yeah. Two ministry in question. Uh -huh. And that usually is work that has nothing to do with research. To continue in research, the thing is, when you finish the second year of master, you can ask to get a grant to be a PhD student. There are like 60 people each year in those by promotion for this. Uh -huh. And I think 15 approximately get into a PhD because it's interesting uh -huh. for the ministry to have people with a PhD. And then once you're a PhD, if you want to continue in research, you have to lobby one of those institutions related to the ministry that does research to open a job for you and to pay uh -huh. you after the end of your PhD. So yeah. it's very different from anything else in the way that you get a position. I got my okay. position in a very weird way and I had to lobby for it more than I had to right. like, go through the normal process. That's something I had to do during my PhD and it was kind of stressful to stay in research and not go work for the ministry. So when you sign this contract, at which time, you know, you're still an undergraduate. I don't know, what are you, 21 or yeah. something when you're signing this? Yeah. So at that point, you know you actually are guaranteed a job for life, right? If yes. you don't want to, you will never have to search for a job again. Yes. But you just don't know what it will be. And so to get it to be research yeah. and do a PhD, you had to do this whole other yeah. process and, yeah, come so out on the... When I signed yeah. this, I don't think that I want to be a researcher at all. Uh -huh. I think I want to work on policies for climate adaptation that the best place where I can do it is the Ministry of Environment. That's uh -huh. what I think then. And uh -huh. then uh, I think also that it's better to do a PhD to work on that, like to uh -huh. really better know the science, the data, and to have yes. connection into the academic world. So yes. that's, that's the plan. And then uh -huh. I start my PhD and I actually really like it. And I realized that I might want to be a researcher. And then <laughs> there's a problem because it's not like... It looks easy now that I have it, but it's not that easy to get the position in research no. 
at the end of my PhD. So that's something that I had, I had in mind during my PhD. And also I realized another thing is that what I thought they were doing at the ministry is not mm-hmm. at the moment at any level near to what I would like to work on in terms of adaptation policies. Mm-hmm. So it's still something I have in mind. Like if at some point the ministry gets more than five or six people working on that, that tackles the adaptation problems, not on a research point of view, but more an operational point of view. That's It's very nice because I kind of have an open door to that because my position is still related to, to the ministry in a way. Yeah. Let's talk about your PhD in a minute since you started to get into that. But first, you said at the beginning, even before deciding that you wanted to be a researcher, your interest was in climate adaptation. So why that in particular, as opposed to, say, decarbonizing? Because I felt like there was a lot missing there and everything was to build, which is still kind of the case. That how do we do climate adaptation? How do we translate the scientific data into actual public policies for climate adaptation? Still a bit unclear. And yes. so I, I was interested in impacts and I, I felt also the other thing is I was a physicist by training and I felt like if you want to work on mitigation or decarbonization, it's better to be an economist by training. Uh-huh. And I actually have some colleagues who did the same thing than me did a PhD in economics. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I completely understand your perspective and I more or less came to the same conclusion myself a few years ago. Maybe it's a generational thing because, you know, when I was at the stage you're describing, I mean, I wasn't particularly interested in climate yet as young as you were, but at that time, adaptation was considered not taboo, but people who were passionate about climate thought it was wrong to talk about adaptation because that meant you're giving up on mitigation and it's that had clearly yeah. changed by your time but I you know so I think you're right to perceive that there's so much we didn't know and also that for physics the physics yeah. problems and adaptation were more unsolved so you go through all this you decide to do the PhD you get approved to do it I think before I talk about the PhD okay I have to explain the two years of masters okay the first one is the year of climate science which is typical for many climate scientists where you learn about dynamics and this is at Jussieu already or still at Polytechnic yes yes that's in Jussieu okay and at this point, I decided to focus on extreme events. I, I was kind of mm-hmm. thinking of geoengineering, actually. Really? Yeah, because I, I did a small, very short research internship in Colombia, actually, uh, at the end of my first year of master's. And I, uh-huh. I saw a talk in Colombia. I don't remember who gave the talk, but they were talking about geoengineering. And I was... It's not that I wanted to do geoengineering. I felt like maybe that's something we should study to show what could be the problems. And then I was talking with my professors in in France and they were telling me that's not something I want to do because I would kind of be ostracized by the climate communities if I I did that. I mean, that's not like the best thing to work on if you want to have a good network in climate science, at least as a young scientist. And so I thought that extreme events were interesting and I did an internship at LSE with Pascal Braconneau. Mm-hmm. And it was on uncertainties and different types of indices to describe uh, cold spells mm-hmm. and in different models. And I like, yeah, very uh, kind of basic um, data analysis and crossing different models and different runs from the same model to understand different sources of uncertainties. So that's a bit classical. But the second master is the public policies one. 
So that's right. where you get background in things that have to do with what you could work on in the ministry. So you had to do two masters and one of them had to be public policy? Yeah. And this is as a condition because you're doing the PhD? No, I had to do it anyway. And the the, the second master is I the see. one I would do with the 60 people from the same promotion that were going to be I see, working I see. from okay. the ministry. That's where I, I met some social scientists working on climate science. At which university? École des Ponts. It's another okay. grande école. But then the second half is when you're focusing on your professional mission and your master thesis, because it was just before COP21, was 2015. Wait, COP21 is Paris, huh? Yes. Okay, yeah. So there was a conference organized in Paris by scientists, Our Common Future Under Climate Change, that was called. It was mm -hmm. interdisciplinary. And I was working in the secretariat and also analyzing why the scientists were doing that, organizing that conference, and how they were placing themselves in what we called as social scientists climate regime. And so I was doing some interviews with the scientists mm. organizing the conference. Uh -huh. And I learned a bit about the way social scientists think through that. Uh -huh. So social scientists, uh, can we be more specific about the discipline yeah. of these people? Sociology or something? Yeah, so I was working with um, Amy Daon, Stéphane Aikut, and uh, Hélène Guimaud, and they were kind of sociologists of science or uh -huh. historians of science. And they are also politicists, but the, what they helped me on was more sociology of science. And say again the questions that you were thinking about? I, you, I know you just said it, but can we? Yeah, uh, the questions were, why do scientists organize this type of conference? What kind of message do they want to provide to the public or maybe not the public, to the decision makers? And how do they position themselves through such an object like this conference? Uh -huh. Has stakeholders or key stakeholders in the lead to COP21? And this was, so this was the conference before COP, COP separate? Yeah, it was and a few months before COP, yeah, in and July. And it's attended by scientists? Are the, are yeah, the it's 3,000 it? scientists, I think. Oh, 3,000, so quite big. Yeah, and it was interdisciplinary. So all IPCC groups type of people. I see. So what, yeah. and what were the, how did you, what answers did you come up with to those questions? Huh. Um... Or did you get I excited? I don't remember about that well, much I actually about the results. What I remember a lot is more like what I learned about how to conduct interviews and how to think, how social scientists think. I was a bit in this perspective of a scientist saying, but there's a problem with the way that science is used. And so I'm interested in that. And and then the social scientists in front of me were like, that's not the way you look at things. You want to understand what each stakeholder tries to do. And sometimes the scientific truth is not the end goal. Right. It doesn't matter. So I think what I remember is that the scientists, it wasn't like the, it was very well organized into a very clear cut message that should be given to the, um, to the cops and to the negotiators. Um, it was very. It was not. It was not. No. It was very blurry, but it was also a, an effort to do more inter interdisciplinary stuff. But I'm not sure actually how many people from the uh, group one of the IPCC went to group two sessions or group three sessions. I don't know how much they mixed, even though that was right. one of the goals of the conference. Mm. 
I understood better how science is not very organized in some ways. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I saw from my study of this conference. Right. It documented a bit how lost the scientists could be in terms of what they should do, which position they should adopt, what was their role in a shifting climate regime, because it's kind, it was kind of shifting by, by then. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like, um, you know, in the United States context where we've had historically so much climate denial, there's this view that you hear the climate scientists have some kind of organized conspiracy to impose yeah. world socialism. And, you know, what you're describing is a process if you, I mean, to any climate scientist, this is absurd because it's like, have you ever been to one of our conferences? Like, yeah. there's no way we can, you know, we're lucky if we can organize lunch. We cannot, you know, it, it's just, it, it doesn't ring true in any way because we're not because, you know, of what our political beliefs are or are not, but just because it's not how we work. We're, we're not, yeah. uh, we're not, as you say, we're not very sophisticated in thinking about the societal dimension of what we're doing and we're also not that well organized and we don't have we don't always know what we want to say to policymakers and maybe yeah. some of that is why it's taken as long as it has to get any action or maybe it's not why i don't know but something about this grabbed you such that you wanted to continue with the social science past that point even though it wasn't your direction you were planning to continue in a phd in physical science but something about this experience yeah so i found my phd one year before, during my internship at LSE, because I saw a talk by Pascal Yu, who was going to be my uh, PhD advisor, mm -hmm. on his analogs and attribution of extreme events. And he had the PhD grant, and so he was advertising it. And mm -hmm. so I found it really interesting. So I went to talk to him. I actually had my own PhD grant, so I didn't need to use his, but we talked and he was aware that I was interested in social science, although my interest in social science wasn't as well built at the point than it was one year later when I was doing this other internship. So, and Pascal was very open for me to try to do things with social science. And he also had some connections with other social scientists, not the ones that I knew. And so it was something that was kind of there in the PhD project, at least in my discussions with my PhD advisor, that mm -hmm. was a direction that I could maybe look into at some point during the PhD. Right. So the PhD is on extreme event attribution. Right. And the part that I was doing with Pascal was understanding better how to disentangle dynamics and thermodynamics in terms mm -hmm. of what is changing, where do you find trends, in the types of circulation that leads to some extreme events, mainly heat waves. And how much do you explain with just the circulation? How much do you explain in changes of circulation? And how much do you explain in changes that have nothing to do with changes in circulation? That was yeah. kind of the questions that I was looking into with uh, Pascal. Uh -huh. So the first six months of my PhD, I didn't do any social science. Right. I was working on how much do you explain in a heat wave just through the circulation, the atmospheric circulation. Mm -hmm. I had some material to write a first paper, I think in March of my first year. We were talking about writing a first paper. Of course, I didn't submit. I submitted like six months later because it takes some time yeah, to yeah. write your first paper. But then since I had some material, then I had a discussion with Pascal saying, okay, so this part of the PhD is going well. Is it okay to start thinking about social science and mm -hmm. what I can do? And he was very enthusiastic about it. 
IMSC was coming up in June of my first year. Which is what? I don't know this. International Meeting on Statistical Cli okay. Climatology. It's once every three years, and you get a lot of statisticians there, and people who work on extreme event attribution. There's a lot of people uh, who do statistics there. And uh -huh. so it was a good opportunity to interview some scientists there. I wanted to understand why we were doing extreme event attribution. I wanted to understand the genesis of it. At the time, there was this heated discussion between storylines versus risk-based approach of extreme event yeah. attribution. Extreme event attribution is the science of understanding how much climate change influenced an extreme event that you've yeah. just that happened that occurred. So yeah. usually you observe an event and you want to know whether climate change has anything to do with it. Yep. And to answer this question, you have two traditional approaches, I guess. One is to mm -hmm. run a model or at least get a good statistical model to get an idea of what's the probability of occurrence of your event in a world with climate change, which we call the factual world, the world in which the event happened. And you want to have the statistical model or finding it through dynamical model to get an idea of the probability of occurrence also in the counterfactual world, the world without climate change. Mm -hmm. And you compare those two probabilities. And that's right. one way. So just to make it even more uh, concrete, so if you have a model that can simulate climate and you can yeah. decide how much CO2 you want, you can run the model for a long time and count yeah. how many times your event happens in the current climate and then take out the human CO2 and do it again and see how many times it happens and it, the difference is... Yeah, and sometimes you can also do it with just observations by using yes. um, general extreme value theory. Mm. And to get... That's why I was like yes. maybe a bit confusing in the way I was describing it, like to try yes. to encompass all the different ways to do it. Yeah, but yeah the, the key thing is that you want to have two probabilities, one in the world that you know with the CO2 emissions yes, and one in the world where there wouldn't be the CO2 emissions and then yes. you compare them. And the other option is to understand better how climate change influences the physics leading to an event. So for example, mm -hmm. if you take a cyclone you can dissect different parts of the event and part of it is going to be... So you have a higher sea surface temperature. What does it mean for your mm -hmm. precipitation amount? What does it mean for the circulation that leads to the cyclone? And yeah, that's the kind of thing that you do. You try to disentangle the different elements of the climate system and see how the event is different because of climate change. Right. But in the storyline approach, you don't assign a probability. Yeah. You say, okay, we know this thing happened. So let's think about this event. Given that it's there, this event happening with and without climate change. And if I could add one more thing, and then you tell me if, I, if you disagree with it, but I know we have been in conferences together where we've talked about this, but most people would agree that you should do the risk-based approach if you can. But the issue is that, in other words, you want to know the probability, how the probability of the event has changed. Yeah. It's just that sometimes our models aren't good enough or our data aren't good enough. So we can't really get a meaningful answer doing that. The uncertainties are too big for us to assess those probabilities. And yet, we still have good reason to believe that climate change may have had some impact on it. So the storyline yeah. approach lets us look at that, say whatever we can say, without going all the way to the probabilities, because there's things we can say with some confidence, even if we can't assign the probabilities with confidence. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say that you can have probabilities in the storyline approach if you take it as doing conditional probabilities. So yes. for example, what you can do with analogs is like you 
block the circulation. And so you, you look at the temperature you get for every event with similar type of, of circulation, and then you can get a probability for a given circulation to reach the temperature that right. occurred for your event. And then you compare that, that in the factual and the counterfactual world. So you right. can still get some probabilities, but it's not giving you the whole picture of how much the probability of occurrence was influenced by climate change. Right. To condense it, I mean, the typical differences in the risk approach, you would say, well, an event like this has a, you know, twice as high probability or 10% higher probability, whatever the number is of occurring because of human influence, because of greenhouse gas warming. Whereas in the storyline approach, you would say, well, we don't know that difference. But given that there was a storm, it was this much stronger because of warming. That's the kind of difference. Yeah. At the time, it looked like a very big controversy inside the scientific community because there were some articles yes. saying, no, this is the right way to do it. And others saying, you are wrong. We're doing it the right way. Yes. So social scientists in science studies, when they try to understand epistemology and how science works, they are very keen to look at controversies because it's yes. a good way to show how science is moving in a way. Yes. It's a place where you can see the social elements in science and the way we make decisions, the way we resolve controversies and stuff like that. So I was, oh, cool, we have a controversy. Yes, not only social scientists, but also students, by the way, students yeah. of science. It's if, if nobody ever has a fight, it's, it's too boring. Yeah. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of my, my idea at the time was that's that's what I was going to look at by, with social science. I was thinking that by doing interviews with uh, different scientists working on extreme event attribution, that would be actually kind of an original way to do a mm -hmm. review. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you don't do the literature work, but it helps to add more to your review. And I still feel like that's a very good way to do a literature review for a PhD student. Because I had been to COPS through my experience as an activist, mm -hmm. I didn't see how extreme event attribution could be useful at all within COPS, actually. So I was mm. very curious about it. And I managed to get um, an accreditation to go to COP22 in Morocco, mm -hmm. so the mm -hmm. second year of my PhD. And I also decided to do a series of interviews of delegates on extreme mm. event attribution. So mm -hmm. that was another point, like something that I wanted to like cross the interviews from the climate scientists with the interviews from the delegates to be able to say something about loss and damage. So the delegates are like, are not, they're like political actors. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're the people, people who negotiate. Government. So they're not exactly politicians. They're like more the people from administration. So they don't really have that much political power. Yeah, they have yeah. like a mandate from their politicians and then yeah. they negotiate. So, right. yeah. But they're okay. the people who really know how it works inside the the cops and the negotiations. Yes. Well, yeah. So, loss and damage, to explain what it is. Um, yes. It actually has a very blurry definition. But one way to explain it, which is not the only way, but the easiest way to explain it is that, as you said before, uh, there's like mitigation was the one climate problem at some point, like for that we needed to solve the climate problem. So we were not going to do any adaptation. We are going to just find a way to emit less greenhouse gases. And that didn't yeah. happen. So adaptation was the next 
topic of interest in a way. So basically, when you couldn't mitigate, you would adapt to the adverse effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. And then there, especially because of small islands and the f- fundamental existential risk for them to disappear, there was a question that, yes, but there are some things you might not be able to adapt to. And what do you mm-hmm. do with that? And loss and damage, one way to define it is like that's the solution inside the cup to tackle those problems, like to say that we cannot mitigate everything and we cannot even adapt to everything we fail to mitigate. So there should be a category to talk about what we, the the loss and damage related to climate change. And the reason why I say it's not the only way to define it is that there, there are some papers that did interviews with different stakeholders and showing that depending on what kind of country you're from, you don't really necessarily agree with this way of talking about loss and damage. Some of them are going to say that loss and damage is part of adaptation. Some of them say, no, it's outside of adaptation. And the fact that it's very hard to define is something that's very typical of political negotiations, international negotiations and anything political, I guess, that sometimes it's easier to negotiate about something where you don't agree on the definition first. Yes. Because not agreeing on the definition makes it a bit blurry and easier to easier to talk about in a way, which is very well, weird from a scientific point of view. Well, it allows the two sides to go home and tell their constituents that they agreed on two different things so that they can each get away with it, even though they, they wouldn't have been able to get away with it if they really agreed because they don't want the same things, in fact. Can I try to summarize my understanding of loss and damage and how it, what it has to do with attribution and you see if it's if I get yeah. it right? Before this, there was the Green Climate Fund. I mean, the, the rich, high-emitting countries had agreed to give some money to the poorer countries that have emitted less but are experiencing greater impact from climate change, but not sort of admitting guilt. I mean, in other words, yeah. we, they wouldn't say, okay, we're, gonna, we're nice, so philanthropically, we're going to give you some money, but we're not admitting that we owe you money because we did something bad. Whereas loss and damage is, is kind of that. It's saying we, it's a kind yes. of reparation almost. It's like saying we're admitting that we're to blame for this problem, so we should give some money. And that's what has changed, right? The reason attribution in general is relevant to that is attribution is about assigning blame directly. Attribution is about saying, well, this event, these events that happen are related to the human emission of greenhouse gases to whatever degree, yes or no. That's what attribution science is about. So it's that's why it's so important for loss and damage. Yeah. So the, the thing, the funny thing about loss and damage and the way it's in the Paris Agreement is that there's a um, decision linked to the Paris Agreement. And in this decision, it says that whatever Article 8, the one on loss and damage is talking about, has nothing to do with compensation and liability. And that's the only reason why the US agreed to sign the COP21 agreement. And so that still applies to the most recent one? Yeah, still kind of, it's not clear. But yeah, that's the, it's the thing with loss and damage. It's never very clear. Okay, but so this is one of the uses of attribution. And, you know, so it's easy to see why it's relevant. It's also, you know, people expect that it will be relevant 
in uh, uh, court cases. So we're starting to have more climate uh, court cases in various legal systems, including the United States. We just had a big one in Montana. I don't know if attribution science was part of that, I think maybe. And attribution science is not only extreme event attribution, it's also detection and attribution that has been core science to the IPCC reports, which are the core elements of most scientific proofs in many courts of laws. Yeah, so we should go back earlier and say that detection attribution goes back way before extreme event attribution. It was attribution of the global mean temperature rise, for example, saying that is happening and it's due to greenhouse gases. That came first. And during that early time, people would say you can't attribute extreme events. But you can attribute the big trends, the big picture, the big the global climate change, but not individual events. And then after Miles Allen's work in the early 2000s, they, people yeah. started applying that I, those ideas to extreme events and leading to all the stuff you've been. Yeah, and extreme about. events is quite related to loss and damage because a lot of the impacts yes. that we expect from climate change might come through extreme events, also some of them through long-term trends. But because extreme events is part of whenever loss and damage is brought in the light. Um, extreme events are part of loss and damage. And they're, yeah, yeah that, that's why extreme event attribution was brought in the debate. But when you yes. are inside the COP and when you see how it works inside the COP and when you're aware that loss and damage is doesn't even have a proper definition yeah. and that there's this uh, decision saying that loss and damage shouldn't have anything to do with liability and compensation, Uh. then you start seeing that maybe extreme event attribution, it's hard to see how it would be used inside negotiations. In negotiations where you also have negotiators who still haven't really been able to agree on like a baseline for when you should start counting emissions more generally, like if you want to yeah. attribute responsibility, then do you attribute responsibility from the start of human emissions or from the first IPCC report? Right. And do you want to divide by number of inhabitants or not? Stuff like that. It's like it's very technical and very political, but then the delegates don't want to go into stuff like that because it gets too political, too like precise, and and that's why that's something understand when you go to cops yeah. this type of blurriness and of political space that doesn't really work in the way you would expect when you have your brain that's wired in a scientific way and that's why every time i heard about loss and damage being a potential useful venue for extreme event attribution i was a bit confused and that's why i wanted to work on it during my phd yeah. So, okay. So now we're well into your PhD. There's one of your papers that I, I mention all the time where it's basically you did an empirical study on who actually use because people make all kinds of claims about why we do attribution and what it's for. Yeah. And my view has always been that the main real users of it, a lot of uses people say are mostly uh, in their in their imagination. I mean, there's a lot of uses you could do, but that don't really happen. The one that does really happen and where attribution has been very, very powerful, I think, is in the media and in the public discussion on climate. And you did an empirical study that basically showed that it's true, that the main users are reporters. That's who really, really pays attention and does stuff about attribution and not much else. So I wonder, did I say that correctly? And do you want to talk about that study? 
So what I would rather say is that I didn't have the time during my PhD to look at what's non-scientist in every different type of use that the scientists imagine extreme event attribution could be useful for. I, I didn't have focus groups for everyone. And there are some okay. papers doing it, but it's just like if I had done only social science, maybe I could have done that, but otherwise it's a bit mm -hmm. too much. What I did is that I like had my different interviews with scientists and it mm -hmm. helped me to categorize what they thought extreme event attribution could be useful to mm -hmm. and for, for who. And then I went through literature, both gray and uh, scientific literature, to see yeah. what kind of proof there was yeah. about how useful attribution could be. And so yeah. for litigation and for loss and damage, for example, it's hard to find concrete proof of how it would be used. Then there's one that I always very confused about is the um, use for adaptation. Because yeah. I mean, it's it's as if like when extreme event attribution scientists say it's going to be useful for adaptation, it feels like they forget that there are other types of scientific data, other ways to yeah. show <laughs> right. the the climate climate science and the impacts of climate change that are yeah. not in differences of probabilities of an event that already happened. Yes, and like I, I I'm not saying that the type of statistical science and climate science that's done to better understand how climate change impacts the occurrence of extreme events is not useful for insurance or adaptation, but right. just that the exact extreme event attribution way of formulating those results, it doesn't make much sense to say that's what insurers or adaptation practitioners would use because yes. maybe they're more interested into what happens in 10 years or 20 years or like things that we can do with climate science yes, and with other yes, type yes. of climate services. And so then there's another type of use that's the raising awareness about climate change and about using weather, which is something we can grasp very easily to understand better climate because climate yes. is not something so easy to understand. And when you talk yes. about like global warming in terms of you get two degrees more at the global scale, then what does it mean? It's really not tangible. It's not easy to grasp. But if you're talking about extreme events that happen where the people live, then it helps them connect their reality and their understanding of weather with climate change. And that's where journalists come into the whole picture. So for this, at the time, I didn't necessarily have many proofs that it works. So there's like, it's not that easy to say it's going to help people to really know that climate change is happening and to connect it to their experience, their everyday experience, because yeah. you have some science about the way people who have been affected by extreme events connect them to climate change. At the time when I wrote the article, there, were, there weren't any papers about what happens when you add the scientific statement about extreme event yeah. attribution. Yeah. Since then, what I said in the paper is basically that it's unclear and it's like maybe adding the scientific statement would help to better communicate. And it's yeah. also clear that journalists are interested, like it was also in the paper that journalists were interested because when you talk with the climate scientists, that's the one stakeholder where they can say, yes, 
we have interest from the outside world because journalists are contacting us to, about this. So yes, that's like there's actual proof that you have stakeholders who came to you and not stakeholders that you like try to get in a room and we say, yeah, it's right. interesting <laughs> because they work with you on other things. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm like, I'm being a bit cynical here and I'm not saying that all stakeholders yeah. are not interested in, in extreme event attribution. It's just that it's hard to prove how much yeah. interested they would be into it. And then since then, there are papers about the California drought, Shannon Osaka, and mm-hmm. uh, what they did, which is really interesting, is to see how two different focus groups, uh, one are uh, agriculturalists, that's how they call them, and one are environmentalists, uh, environmentalists. Uh, mm-hmm. so they are lay people, and yeah. uh, they ask them what they think about drought and its connection to climate change, and then yeah. they show them some uh, news paper articles and yeah. as you may know they're like what's interesting with the california case is that there were like at least at the time when uh, she wrote the paper there were 11 different scientific studies with very contrasting results because they yeah. don't look at the same things yeah basically. yeah 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 and um and so what they found is that in a case where you have so much uncertainty and where you can find articles saying what you want them to say the different groups took the articles that were much uh, in, in agreement with their value and said they were the like good articles they could rely on. So that's <laughs> maybe related to this case where you have a lot of uncertainty so yeah. and different answers in the scientific communities. And there was there's another paper about uh, what happens in the UK that I have to, to read, but where they apparently have conclusion that it's useful for communication and where they did the work of like having focus groups and talking yeah. with lay people and i think that's what you need to do to understand better how attribution can reshape some views of climate change or not yeah so i want to talk a little bit more about this and i'm actually trying to I, i've been having this conversation with people for you know here and there because i think when i say these things to attribution scientists, sometimes they feel that I'm attacking attribution or I'm criticizing it, which is really not the intent because I I think attribution science has been really important. But I'm going to so I'm going to say some of the same things you just said, because I, yeah. I your work has been very influential to me on this, but I it, the words might be a little different. So I want to see if you buy it. So first of all, I mean, to say attribution is important mostly for the media, at least so far. I mean, I think loss and damage and court cases could be very important uses in the future. Yeah. It's just that, so, and that's a good motivation. I can agree about it, yes. Yeah, but so far, you know, not not so much. So that's one thing. Um, the adaptation we could get to in a minute, but to say it's important for the media, I feel like attribution scientists, some of them don't like that statement because they feel it's insulting in some way, like they're it's, it's making it trivial or something. But I really don't think so. I mean, as you say, the media are the stakeholders who come to us. And even before there was attribution science, the reporters, every time they would, would call scientists and say, you know, was this extreme weather event related to climate change? And it's just that they got the very frustrating answer of, no, we can't say any one event is due to climate change, even though we can talk about overall trends, which if you think about it, never made that much sense, because how can it be that somehow there's a trend in some kind of, you know, there's a trend in heat waves overall on average, but yet it has nothing to do with any one of them. That that didn't really make sense. So, So what attribution science does is 
it's where the scientists take the question seriously. What did climate change have to do with this event? And try to answer it in the best case. I mean, there's good attribution studies and bad ones, but in the best case, the scientists are trying to answer it as best as possible with existing scientific methods or scientific methods that can be made out of existing you know, knowledge and tools and give the most honest answer they can. And, the, and so that's what it's doing. It's responding to a societal need. And the reason the reporters do that, as you said, is that they wanted to report on climate change, but it's kind of big and global and kind of hard to make a story out of it. But an extreme weather event, everybody relates to that. It's easy to get it in the news. So that's the reason they were coming to scientists is a way to get climate into the to write story, get their editors to approve stories about it. So by doing attribution science, we're helping them do that. And I think one of the consequences of that is that in in the last, you know, 10 years in your career, you know, your professional lifetime as a, as a scientist, the media coverage of climate has grown tremendously. Yes. There's so much more than there was when I was young. And a lot of that is because of attribution. And so I think, you know, for example, we now have the first major cl- federal climate legislation in the United States ever. We have the Inflation Reduction Act that the Biden administration put, which is a huge achievement. I mean, it's imperfect. It has problems. It's not enough. There's some bad things. But it's a huge, in the big picture, it's a huge success on climate, the kind that we never had until now. And I would argue that happened because of attribution, because I think, <clears throat> I don't think Biden would have ever, the IRA would have happened without the youth climate movement, which is like Sunrise and stuff, had a lot of power in the, mm-hmm. with the Biden administration, helped him get elected uh, in the first place. And I don't think the youth climate movement would necessarily exist without attribution. I think it's all that media coverage that got the young people seeing the scary stuff that got them activists. So I think, so it's just to say, I think that's an important use and it's not something to be belittled. So when we say, that's one point I want to make, like when we say attribution is useful so far, mostly for the media, that's not a bad thing. Like the media needs to cover climate and we need to help them do it in a responsible way. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I just want to sort of amplify the point you made about adaptation because that's one of the things you hear is well adaptation the attribution will help people understand how to plan for the future and it sort of makes sense and it sort of doesn't because as you said so again i'm repeating things you said but i'm just going to say it in different words because i think it's good to to talk about it at some length the as you described how attribution works let's take the risk-based case you want to say, how did the probability of this event change? So to do that, you have to, cal- first of all, calculate the probability of a certain kind of extreme event. And for adaptation planning, that's a big thing. You need to know the probability of the extreme events now and also how they're changing. But really, what you need to know is what's the probability of the extreme event going to be in the future? I mean, yeah. if it's changing a lot due to climate change, you want to know that. If it's only changing a little bit or you don't know, well, you still need to plan for it. So either way, you need the probabilities and exactly how big the change is, is just one part of the answer. Whereas for attribution, that's the whole answer. So it's kind of a different framing of things. And also for adaptation, you have to, like with attribution, sometimes you don't get a, you can't make a clear statement of how big the human influence was. But for adaptation, you have to deal with it anyway. So the uncertainties are the uncertainties, but you still need all the information you have with all the uncertainties. So adaptation science and attribution science, part of it is very important parts of it, as you said, are kind of the same, but the the framing is different. And the big difference is like you do attribution when an event has just happened, like it gets people's attention. That's why it's in the media. That's why we do it. Whereas for adaptation, it doesn't really matter what just happened. It matters what's going to happen in the future. Right. What just happened, you can't do anything about usually you, you you accept, you know, recover and whatever. But 
But for planning for the future, you need to know about the future. So focusing the analysis on the event that just happened, you know, is not necessarily the best strategy and can even be misleading. And, um, and so that's why they're different, even though they're kind of the same attribution science and, and, and general risk analysis for adaptation. What the counter argument to that, which I have heard people make, and I think it's sort of true, is that, well, but when there is an extreme event, that's when people pay attention. That's when they're most ready to do adaptation. I mean, we're building all the, you know, there's Army Corps is planning to build seawalls in New York City and stuff. We could argue about whether that's a good idea or not, but it's happening because we had a big event. Sandy, it wouldn't be happening yeah. without that. So in that sense, attribution science is like connecting some elements of what you need for adaptation to the thing that people are paying attention to, even though it might logically not be for the right reason. But that's how people think. And as the social scientists will tell you, you can't you have to deal with people as they really are and you can't imagine perfectly rational people. So anyway, I think it's a super interesting uh issue this relationship between the two and i just want to hear if you agree with that or if you have different thoughts on it or what you know if you want to say anything more about these issues yeah i, I can agree to a point that there's there's a link and then it can be like useful to bring climate change on the table once an extreme event happened but then i think like and maybe extreme event i that's even the attribution scientists who think it's useful for for adaptation would say, yeah, but of course that's what we think. It's just like a conversation starter. But I think it has to go with having a description of what could happen in the future. Is this event that just happened, like, like let's take Sandy, that is it something that's the worst that can happen or what can we expect in the future? And like right. if we only prepare because adaptation is about preparing. If you only prepare about things that have already happened with failing to communicate yeah, the real dangers of climate change. And I think we have, even though there's so much uncertainties in the projections, we have ways to explain better the real dangers of climate change based on some level of certainty that we have in our climate projections. And I, I'm not saying nobody's doing it, just saying that extreme yeah, yeah. event attribution, if you want to use it for adaptation, it cannot be anything more than a conversation starter, at least from my point of view. And yes. it's also something that comes back in different social scientists' work where they did interview um Stakeholders, like in the same Osaka paper that I was talking about, they also talk mm -hmm. with politicians and uh, and they say that they're already doing things for adaptation and that whether it's connected to climate change or not is not like this specific drought is connected to adapt to, to climate change or not is not going to change their policies. I'm not yeah. saying that may maybe it's like delusional to think that climate science is useful to change policies to make them more ambitious or make sure that we're ready for right. those big extreme events that we will get in the coming decades. But I understand how like stakeholders, adaptation stakeholders in different studies would, would say like there are some quotes here and there in the literature where they say that the attribution itself is not what's useful. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. But Right. I mean, I, another thing you could say, I mean, attribution is 
most important for sort of like making the political case, but there might be situations where you don't want to do that. So for example, one argument you could make, I'm not sure if I agree with this view or not, but I think there's some, it has to be taken seriously. In a country like the United States, where we have a very, very divided society and a decent fraction of the population either doesn't believe climate change is real or doesn't really want to talk about it or thinks it's a leftist you know, plot or something, is that if you're trying to actually take an adaptation measure, you know, do make some investment in climate adaptation to mitigate the, the risk from future extreme events, you might be able to get agreement on those measures, even if you can't get agreement on the, uh, the attribution to climate change. People might say, I don't want to talk about climate change, but I understand we have a risk and we have to do something. So that could be a case where attribution is just like, uh, not helping to get the consensus that you need to do some action. I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't know how I feel. I have mixed feelings about that argument, but it's an argument you could make. Yeah, and there's also some criticism in the um, social science literature, more in disaster risk reduction literature, about uh, making disasters as frame them as climate change events. Yeah, and, like things that they call climate climatization. Yes. So in a way, it puts back the highlight on the hazard that led to very big yes. impacts. And it tends to invisibilize vulnerability and exposure, which yes. are very much related to local policies in place. And so it can help local politicians that might not have taken seriously enough flooding zones or like extreme events that could happen without climate change. Um, yes. They can help them to shift the blame and say yes. the blame is on climate change. And it's also, in a way, very interesting that in disaster risk reduction, at least in the scientist sphere, as I understand it, there's this work to shift the disaster risk reduction out of the highlight on the hazard, which is going yes. to always lead to type of solution that have to do with engineering. Yes, And that also tends to erase the responsibility of the people in charge locally and to better talk about social vulnerability and exposure. That's kind of something I'm working on right now. It's not a published paper yet, but trying to like find a way to bridge this view to say, okay, this exists. We have a prob we may have a problem with um climatizing some events yeah. too much with yes. attribution, can we find ways not to do that, but to keep working on attribution? That's kind of questions I'm interested in now. I mean, I think this is the climatization. It's like when you, if you start thinking about like, why does climate science matter? Why does climate change matter? And it matters for people. Then you quickly realize that you have to think about a lot of other things besides climate at the same time. And, and I think climate, when people say climatization, they're referring to climate scientists or activists who kind of don't want to do that and want to focus on climate to the exclusion of other issues, which sometimes doesn't make sense. So can we now just cover the evolution of things since your PhD? So first of all, you finished when? A few years ago? 2018. 2000, okay, yeah. so five years. But you're a researcher, full-time researcher. Yes. Although maybe teaching also. I, I yeah, uh, yeah, I'm also teaching. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can we just talk about what you've been doing in the last few years? I mean, I know there's still a lot of attribution in there. I mean, yeah. you, the same themes are still there, but can you tell me whatever you want to talk about of what's been going on? So the way I was doing the interdisciplinary stuff during the PhD was more pluridisciplinary in terms of mm -hmm. I was doing science and I was also doing some reflexive 
science about the science I was doing. Yeah, yeah. And while it was really nice to do that, it was also not enough interdisciplinary in some ways and not enough focused towards solutions. So I spent a lot of time trying to think of ways to entangle different disciplinary approaches to get closer to not really solution, but diagnostic of climate change that's useful for decision making, I would say. Mm. That led to three directions. Mm. So one of them is still close to attribution. It's what I was talking about just before, trying to see, can we do attribution of extreme impacts and cross the attribution related to climate change? So the anthropogenic forcing on climate has an influence on hazard, which will have an influence on impacts. Can mm -hmm. we cross that with the type of study that can look at the influence of anthropogenic forcings on vulnerability and exposure. Right. That leads to the same impact. So that's things like paving the floodplain and so on. Yeah. I mean, other, other human activities that affect the outcome yeah. of so the event, at, even if they don't affect the storm itself. Yeah. At this point, there are some studies that do that for more for trends, for example, mm -hmm. for um, droughts, like um, the flow in rivers or stuff like that, but more in a trend way, like, and mm -hmm. not so much related to specific extreme events. So I'm interested to see if it's possible. I think so. We're discussing that with some colleagues. And at this point, it's more perspective and like trying to pave the way into doing these kinds of studies. Mm -hmm. But that's one direction. The other is crossing climate data about extreme events with um, impact data, but impactful extreme events, and with um, exposure and potentially vulnerability data, which is not the same that what I said before, because it's not about attributing. It's more about crossing the two. Part of it mm. is trying to see where if you have correlations or not. So it helps you to get an idea of climate injustice other mm -hmm. people who are uh, the most vulnerable, also the ones who are most exposed to some extreme events. Also, can we get better metrics closer to impacts by not only using climate data, but also exposure data? Density of population is something it's very easy to get. And so mm -hmm. if we cross that with the occurrence of extreme events or intensity of extreme events, does it give us a different answer than when we're just looking at things from a climate perspective? Yes. It, it does. <laughs> and yes. yeah, we've been doing that for heat waves with my first PhD student, currently writing a paper on that. Very good. And uh, the third direction is like, I'm interested in storylines, but more in a way that looking at what could be the extreme events of tomorrow. So when we look at the climate of tomorrow, often we look at it in terms of probability density functions. And we when we communicate about it, it's a lot about probability density functions. So what's yeah. possible? And answer another way to look at what's possible, and that's something that some stakeholders are interested in, in is to look at worst case scenarios, or at least maybe not worst case, but What's an one in every 10 year events in 20, 30 years, according to different models? 
Yeah. So like I, I'm not involved in that, but for example, Paris, uh, the Paris city um, is working with some of my colleagues on a 50 degrees Celsius question. Can we get 50 degrees Celsius heat wave in Paris? Yeah. So, and there are other stakeholders interested in that, like energy providers who have to deal with nuclear plants and stuff like that. I am working more on droughts at the moment. I'm trying to look at what is extreme in, in France for French droughts, um, uh -huh. what is extreme in the historical data and what may be the extreme droughts of tomorrow. The idea of that is also to use these kinds of stories of what could happen yeah. tomorrow in collaboration with social scientists to see how local stakeholders react to that. And yeah. if it's a good conversation starter, sometimes it's a bit like prospective. It's supposed to be yeah. a way to have people who are not generally seeing eye to eye where you have a lot of tensions and like water management is a place where you have a lot of tension. They are projecting themselves in a reality that's close to the current one, but it's 30 years from now, it's another type of event. And sometimes, at least in some studies of, in social science, you have people who do this kind of exercise and it helps to maybe think a bit out of the box. So it's where we go a bit closer to solutions. But for that, I would be working with social scientists, helping them by providing the, the climate data. But I don't think I have the, at least I don't have the woman power by myself to do all this to do the, the interviews, to do what I did during my PhD, because thing is now I'm managing some other researchers and I have yeah. different research directions. And I also have some teaching. So yeah. Yes. For the teaching, um, I mean, I do some traditional teaching, but there's something I really enjoy doing is um, I do creative writing workshop with a writer mm. Mm. and uh, like 10 students approximately each year. It's been mm -hmm. going on for two years and now we're going to start the third season. And the goal is that it's a group of students from different departments. They're not all scientists and they all have to write a short story about climate mm. change. Well, I mean, with a climate change element, it doesn't have to mm -hmm. be the center of the story. And it has to like grasp something that's scientifically plausible or at least that makes sense from a science point of view even if it's very unlikely and talk for example about um, melting glacier or about sea level rise and it's a fiction but the the idea is to make climate change tangible in a way mm -hmm. i think it works quite well at least from a pedagogical point of view but i'm generally very interested in collaboration between artists and scientists to try to to communicate differently about climate change. So that's, even if it's not really in my research, it may become part of my research at some point. That's also yeah. a big part of my activity, trying yeah, to great. connect. Do you, have you written science. such stories yourself? Uh, <laughs> and if so, can we I, read them? <laughs> I haven't written, I mean, I have two thirds of the first book, but it's like at the moment- A I'm fictional not, book? Yeah. Oh, wow. That has to do with, it's kind of an allegory of climate change, but I'm not sure. I, hopefully I will finish it one day, but okay. I have to find time outside of work for that. So it's uh, yeah. tricky. I mean, so the thing I, I want to ask, you know, in hearing about all this, partly because it's a thing I ask a lot of people, but it's particularly relevant for you. And I'm sure you have conscious thoughts about it is how you conceive your motivation and goals in your work 
on the spectrum between activism or societal engagement and and intellectual understanding because you know as a scientist you you produce research you ask empirical questions you look at data to find the answers you do this across a few domains of intellectual activity but clearly even as you were just saying just now you're motivated by the societal problem and you're trying to do some things that are can be part of relevant interventions that can have an impact so how do you conceive about that i mean how do you think about you know some people would say to give just the extreme example some people would say well scientists should just look at the facts and should it should not try to do anything political or or anything you know because that will corrupt our intellectual purity i don't think too many of us really believe that in its most extreme form but that's a view you still do here out there others would say no we should be activists i mean we should be doing everything we can and i think many of us do sort of believe that to one extent but we're not you know but there's a question about how how to make it consistent because one thing you don't want to ever do as a scientist is 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 let your views about you know you can let your views about the societal problem color what questions you ask but you don't want it to color your interpretation of evidence right you want to be a, yeah. you want to be as objective as you can be you know in, in interpreting drawing conclusions from evidence so how do you think about that like what what are your goals or the goals of that you're trying to inculcate in your students i mean how do we think about what we're doing on this spectrum of activity and whether our work makes a difference or not, or how it should make a difference. Yes. So I have many thoughts about this because in a way it's about the nature of science and what it means to be a scientist, I think. Yes. So I have several answers to that. The first would be that one thing I've realized is that you have two different motivations as a scientist, as you said, one is curiosity and the other one is like social usefulness and they mm -hmm. generally don't really align and you have to be okay with that. And they can align to a point, but not entirely. And I think it's right. important to be aware of that. Right. That's why I asked you. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think for, for me, I try to think not only as myself, but as what does a society wants from scientists and why are we paid yes. by the state to do science? Yes. And what is it to be a scientist? Like, when am I a scientist and when am I an expert? Because you could say, like, if you're, like, doing too many things with stakeholders where you're not even necessarily writing scientific papers, but more, like, trying to um, help them to have good adaptation plans or stuff like that. So... Mm -hmm. My answer is that if I'm doing something I couldn't do elsewhere, outside of a laboratory, that mm -hmm. I think is useful for society, but I think I wouldn't have the same time frame to think about things, or the same freedom in terms of if you're in a private society, you don't necessarily get to, to say everything. But when mm -hmm. you're a scientist, like have more freedom to talk. So if if it's something I couldn't do outside and it's useful to a point, mm -hmm. I think that works as being relevant as a scientist for society. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I make sense. I mean, are you saying yeah. like we have a special role, the, the society is paying us to do a certain job. Yeah. So we should make sure we're 
we're making the most of that opportunity and fulfilling that role. I mean, I think of this as, yeah. as not just science, but academia in general. Yeah, like we have well, a certain independence, yeah, so we should be willing to look at the questions that are hard to look at from yeah. elsewhere or, to, or hard to give completely. Yes. Even if it's not exactly the way that science works, like if the, the question you're asking, nobody else has the luxury to asking of asking those questions and trying to understand better, even if those questions won't necessarily lead to an article, won't be considered as something good for your career as a scientist. Mm. If there's no other place where you can ask those questions, mm -hmm. then for me, that's, that's how I try to, to see whether what I'm doing is really science and whether it's relevant that I'm, I'm doing it. Well, well, not just whether it's science, but what, yeah, whether you should spend your time. I mean, you, yeah. it's like, it's like you have a responsibility because of the role you're yeah. in. I think of this a lot too, because I, you know, I had this midlife crisis where I think about like, is my science helping anyone? What should I do? Should I go and be an activist? Should I go and do something? And part of what I think is, well, I'm in this position. Yeah. I'm in this privileged position. So that's worth something. And so it's it's reasonable to ask, what can I do from here? Because if I go into yeah. some other space, I'm just a regular Joe. And, you know, I don't necessarily have any clout. Nobody will listen to me. But from here, some people will. So, yeah. So, like, how can we use that asset that we have got? Yeah, that's that we have part of it. And also the independence and uh, the time that we have. Even though we well, always say well, that those we're are so busy. Too. Like, it's true that we are very busy and that we always have deadlines, but compared yeah. to the type of time and the time of how we can extend the time we spend thinking on the topic, reading on the topic, uh, talking with other scientists and, and with stakeholders, this type of time we only get in academia, at least maybe. Well, maybe I think we have. I yeah. think we have some independence. I mean, we, yeah. we're very busy, but we have some power over what we're busy on. Not as much as we would like sometimes, but we have some. And so that's, yeah, we can control it and we can, that enables us to, yeah. so to ask these questions. I, and, I guess that's my individual way of like having an ethical compass on what I'm doing. But yeah. other than that, there's a more general question on why science is the way it is right now. With the norms that we have, with the close, uh, how close we are from the rest of society. Like having science as a hobby mm. is kind of rare and it's hard. Yes. And it's not really connected to any, to, it's hard to be connected to professional scientists. If you yes. compare to arts, if you're good in music and you're not a professional musician, you still get opportunities you, you can still play music. You can still spend a lot of time on it, and and you can right. still give concerts and have people come to your concerts. And right, and it's the same with many types of arts. Maybe right. not all of them, but um, I mean, I'm not aware of all of them. But for science, it's like there's this barrier between us and the society. Yes, and it's also takes its roots into the way science was built and who was doing science at the time, what's basically the rich people, rich guys, the yes. aristocrats, and being peer-reviewed also like, it's like you have this status that makes you above people who are not scientists. And 
yeah so maybe i'm mixing too many things here but no. um i think that's another question for us as scientists because i don't think we ask ourselves enough the question how much we want science to change mm. like how much the institution are the like because the institutions also are old and they're not necessarily um in co coherent with what the society we have now is right and so that, that's the type of question i think we don't ask ourselves a lot and well, like when i it's not really about openness of science but um doing my phd half half with some reflexivity in it something that's not normal to do not very valued but yeah. that would be a way to do science differently to try to mm -hmm. like just ask ourselves the question of why we are doing it from the beginning and then if we start asking ourselves those questions then it also opens all those other cans of worms of how do pe does peer review work who gets to do science who doesn't get to do science how much the laboratories are open to the world and what's the role of a scientist who decides what the scientist should do and stuff like that and for me it's like very large the questions that you you ask like i don't have a very good definite answer because it only tends to open other questions in my mind. I, I wanted to ask something about something more about the doing physical science and social science together, because that's so unusual to the degree that you have done it. And I think it's relevant to your discussion about institutions because, because um, one of the things we would say, I mean, if a PhD student came to us, you know, and, and wanted to do that, the classical advice of an academic career, and I think it's still true from the point of view of what makes it easiest to be successful is you do one thing and get really good at that. So you have one community that respects you and will say you're good at it and a world leader and blah, blah, blah. And then you can get a job and get tenure and all these things. And then once you're established, if you want to do something else, like fine, but it's a mistake to do it too early on because then you can't sort of uh, do everything at once yeah. and win the respect of all those communities because of our structures. And I'm wondering, you've been successful. I mean, it seems like your career is going fine so far and you have done this in a way that normally we would, we wouldn't necessarily tell somebody don't do it, but we would say it's a risk to do that. And you have to be aware of that. And I'm wondering whether part of it, I mean, obviously you're very capable and able, you know, part of it is just you, right? But the other, but I'm wondering whether part of it is also the French system that you did have job security from quite early. Yep. So things that might have been a risk in a different case were not so risky for you. You have some freedom too. And maybe that's there's a lesson there about institutions too. Yeah, uh, I think definitely the French system and having like the security from the beginning really helped. Um, but on the other hand, like seeing how it went for me, because like I had the security and of course it it helps, but then if I look at how I could network with other scientists, like it didn't play that much of a part that mm. I was like, that I had this security in my interactions with other scientists. Right. What I think is as long as you are solid 
like it could work also because I had um, papers that were really climate science in my PhD, yes. and that's why I didn't start doing the the social science before I was sure I could have one paper in climate science, and that I like it was quite early in my PhD, so I was I feel I felt secure that I could at least do the basic PhD stuff from the climate science perspective. But then if you like manage to do that, being um, like, if people see you as the interdisciplinary person, then it gives you a lot of opportunities too. And I, I, I would say that I got completely drowned in the opportunities and I had to learn how to say no. And that ah. I had a period where I wasn't writing papers because of this, also because of COVID and different things. But like, I, yeah, I wasn't very productive in terms of papers because I got lost in too many opportunities. But it gives you opportunities yeah. that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah. Um, some scientists from different disciplines reach out to me and I don't have to go look for them. I can if I want, but I don't have to. Mm. And even in terms of funding now, people think of me because I have this uh, yeah. sticker of interdisciplinary. Yeah. And it helps. So yeah. I think it's also because I took the risk because I could. Yeah. But I'm not sure it's actually that much of a risk if you're good enough at doing it scientifically speaking and if yes. you find also a way like either you do it the way i did so pluridisciplinary where you have papers in both or you can if you find the right um the right um phd advisors or like even postdocs postdoc advisors you can also find good questions that you can only answer when using both, like when, when I was talking mm. about uh, crossing exposure data with climate data, mm. it's like scientifically, it makes sense. It's like quite well built question. It's not really blurry. Like it's clear that you're going to get some results, but you can mm. only do it if you are open minded and able to talk with people from different disciplines. Mm. And there are some questions like that. So that's another option, I think. Yeah. And for my, my students, uh, the, the students who come to me and want to do interdisciplinary stuff, then I'm very uh, clear that it might be a risk. But then some yeah. of them, they're like, from their point of view, it's not worth doing science if you don't take that risk. Right. So yeah, it, I mean, it's like that. Yeah. And if we have a good topic because I'm not like giving a PhD, like for a PhD, I absolutely don't want to do interdisciplinary stuff, stuff for the sake of doing interdisciplinary stuff. You have to have right. a topic where you feel that's solid enough that you will have some papers and yep. that you have a chance of having an academic career afterwards. Yeah. Then I'm not sure it's that much of a risk. I think also it opens opportunities both in academia and outside of academia. And it yeah. helps to have also a bigger network in some yeah. ways. If you have the right people as advisors, 
because the yeah. other the risk the risk I would see is like being left alone with yeah. a topic that's not well defined. Yeah, I mean, can we say so? I mean, and I've and I have said this to to students and postdocs who ask this question, even though I'm I'm not as well positioned to answer it as you are. That there is a risk. I think there still is one. But there's also a, an opportunity. There's an there's a upside. You know, there's a lot yeah. to be gained from doing work that has multiple disciplines in it that doesn't fit in the natural disciplinary boundaries. And maybe we can also say that at the current moment, where where the climate problem is so acute and so uh, has grown so much in the attention it's getting from the world, and there's so much uh, of a greater focus on on action we're trying to do things about it and that action invariably involves more things than just physical science it invariably involves human dimensions and so on that the the upside you know the, the opportunity is growing yep. and maybe because of that the risk is decreasing because more and more people to be going this direction and so you're you're like an early adopter i mean you're one of you know there's not maybe there's nobody exactly like you but i mean there's relatively few who are yep. compared to the path you know compared to what there could be who are do, trying to combine these things, but that, but that, but there's probably going to be more in the future, yeah. and that means that the professional stuff will get easier because, you know, th then you'll have more people who can, who can understand what everyone is yeah. doing. Anyway, so that's it's an encouraging. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I would say that it's really needed to find a way to get out of only being in different silos in science and. You can only do that by some level of interdisciplinary work. And there are opportunities to find in between the silos, I guess. Okay, very good. I don't want to keep you all evening. Thanks so much for your thoughts and for taking the time to talk to me about all this, Agwe. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So you see what I mean? If you work as an academic in climate, you hear people say that the important problems now are interdisciplinary. You hear it so often that it's a cliche, in fact, and it's an obstacle to be overcome for most of us. But for Agle, it's just not. And besides that, her work is just super interesting and novel, and it was great to talk to her. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. And our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Deep Convection.